there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. My subject today is Love Accepts. Love Accepts. Love is the gold cord that binds us together. It's like the string on the beads. And it's the only thing, the love of which the Bible speaks, is absolutely the only thing which can survive the tests that life together is going to dish out. It's the only thing that can withstand the strain, the love of which Christ speaks and the love which he demonstrated for us when he gave his life for us on the cross. The word is sacrifice, and that is the way that we know what love is, as it says in 1 John 3.16. Here is how we know what love is. Christ laid down his life for us. And a man said to me this morning, is there another word that you might find besides this word sacrifice? And I appreciate the desire because we can distort and twist everything, can't we? And vocabulary gets ruined very often by popular use. If we are thinking of sacrifice always in terms of loss and deprivation, then we're forgetting what the original meaning of sacrifice was in the Old Testament, which was an offering. Something that God has given to us to give back to him. Any Israelite who brought a sacrifice to the tabernacle had nothing to give to God but what God had already given to him. And as the old prayer says, all things come of thee, O Lord, and of thine own have we given thee. We have nothing else to offer. And in marriage, God has given us this tremendous gift of another human being with whom to become one and to share our lives. And it is our response to the love of God to offer ourselves back for the sake of this other person and for the glory of God. Most of us are preoccupied when we get married with what we've gotten and we think we've gotten a prize package. Now, today we're going to think specifically about love's acceptance. What did you receive exactly when you got married? What sort of a person was he or she? My husband Addison Leach used to say that if a woman is very generous, she may acknowledge that her husband lives up to perhaps 80% of her expectations if she's very generous. But what are we going to do with the other 20%? Well, you have two choices. You can either decide to pick away at the 20% that you don't like, and if you do that, then I can guarantee that you will make your own life and that of your spouse miserable, and you will not reduce it by very much, that 20%. The other option is simply to accept all the 20% that you don't like. Maybe your husband lives up to 95% of your expectations, or your wife lives up to 98%, but there's always that little pile of dust in the corner, isn't there? That little thing there, that picky peculiarity that you'd like to change. So because you have married this person, 
you must regard this person as God's gift to you. Never mind how you got into it. Some of you may be thinking, well, God didn't have anything to do with it back then. I wasn't thinking of the will of God, or perhaps you weren't Christians when you got married, or perhaps he was and you aren't, or she was and you aren't. And so what am I supposed to do now? I get lots of letters from people that say, uh, God really didn't have anything to do with my marriage, and God did not join us together. We never should have gotten married in the first place. And so now we're going to split. I really don't think that's the way to look at it. We are in this situation. We know that marriage is an institution far bigger than we, as a particular couple, are. And we find it very easy to forget that, don't we? In a wedding, the young people are thinking only of her and me, forgetting that because we have all this ceremony with the music and the candles and the slow, measured tread down the aisle, this is a ceremony which signals tremendous verities vastly prior to our particular relationship. It is a God-ordained institution, and if you're in it now, then thank God for it and accept this person. Accept him or her in the name of God and start loving him or her. Now, early love is one thing. First love we think of as very exciting and very thrilling with lots of warm fuzzies and the birds singing and the rainbows and all of that. And then we move into the hard realities of daily living and we begin to have revealed to us the difficulties and the hard things about this partner. And so we must move on from early love into what we might call second love. And it takes a slow transfiguration to move into that deeper and much longer lasting second love. I must choose to accept this wife or this husband. And that is a daily choice, in a sense. You did it once for all in your marriage ceremony, but now each day is another choice. I must accept the fact that Lars doesn't keep his office the way I'd like it to be. And between you and me, I made his life miserable, I'm sure, for a good many of the 12 years that we've lived together just by, uh, I don't think I was nasty about it, but just those little needling remarks about, well, when are you going to pick that stuff up off the floor so you can get in the door, and when are you going to clean off the top of that desk so you have a place to put down one piece of paper, and on the counter where he packages the books and the tapes, this is where all the work gets done, uh, why don't you clean off the counter? It would make it so much easier for you, and you could work much more efficiently. The Lord quietly but steadily kept saying to me, that is not your business. And I argued with God, and I said, but Lord, it is my business. It's my books, and it's my tapes that he's dealing with there, and he's got customers that are waiting for their orders, and I don't see how in the world he can do it efficiently and get them out on time, and he's going to be losing people's checks and everything else. And the Lord said, leave him to me. You must choose to accept this man. Now that is not to say that he, that Lars himself doesn't have a responsibility before God, see, but what I'm dealing with here 
in this seminar is marriage. And we need to be very clear about what our individual responsibilities are before God. And it is not the responsibility of the wife to be the moral custodian of her husband. And it will be very liberating if you once accept that fact. And so the time came when I said, okay, Lord, I will let go of that and I'm going to leave it. And I try not to even think of the fact that that room exists in our house. Because Lars has said to me, you don't have to clean this room. You don't have to do anything to it. Don't touch it. So that's where it is. But God has joined us together. Therefore, it is God who has invaded my life. And I spoke of marriage being a revolution. It is an invasion. God has invaded my life in the form of this particular man. And I must relinquish my pride of independence and start taking into consideration who he is and who he and I are supposed to be together. As you know, I've been widowed twice, and each time I had to adjust to learning to say my and I again. And that's not easy when you've been saying our house and, and my house, our house and we, and suddenly it becomes I and my again. Well, then, of course, when I got married the third time, on a few occasions, I said to somebody, uh, why don't you come over to my house? And Lars gave me a little poke, and he said, our house. So I had to adjust that again. But you must walk with this woman or this man before God. Abraham was to walk before God and be perfect. But Abraham had to walk with Sarah before God. And it's in God's strength that I am enabled to walk day by day with this man or this woman. So point one for your outline, the lifelong yes. Rex Harrison in that musical, My Fair Lady, sang, let a woman in your life and your serenity is through. She'll redecorate your home from the cellar to the dome and go on to the enthralling fun of overhauling you. How many times have you heard people say, well, yes, he is an alcoholic or he doesn't go to church, but when we get married, it's going to be different. Well, I'm sure that it is a temptation to all, in all of us women, perhaps much more of a temptation to women to redecorate their men than it is men to redecorate their women, but that is also a problem. I've talked to a good many men who wish their wives were a little bit more feminine or a little bit more conscious of their looks or their weight or their dress. And so I have to say yes, a lifelong yes. And this is analogous to the second condition of discipleship. Jesus gave three conditions for discipleship. The first is you give up your right to yourself, and the second, take up your cross. Now, most of us don't think of our spouses as a cross most of the time, I would hope. But when Jesus said, take up your cross, he was making it very plain that anybody who was going to follow a crucified one, and Jesus was not yet crucified, of course, when he said this, but this is what is involved. If you want to be my disciple, then it has to be a daily yes to God. After having said no to yourself, 
then it's yes to God. And once you have given up your right to yourself, it's not a vacuum in your life. Now it is a glad, wholehearted, daily acceptance of this woman or this man and everything that that entails. Who married her? You did. You made that decision, and so this is what it entails. It's no good sitting around for the rest of your life thinking, I wish I had a different set of peculiarities to live with. What sort of a set of peculiarities would you choose? You can look at somebody else longingly and think, well, now, why didn't I get somebody like her? And, of course, what you don't know is what her husband does know about her. So just remember, you married a sinner. There was never anything else available. And you married an ordinary man or woman, no matter how extraordinary you thought they might be at the time. Now, when Lars was moving toward a proposal, and he moved with very measured, slow tread, for which I was very grateful because I had absolutely no wildest notion of ever getting married a third time. I thought it was a miracle I got married the first time. I was a wallflower up until Jim Elliott came along, but I certainly was not thinking of getting married a third time. So it took Lars a long time to woo me. But when I could see that he was moving in toward a, a very imminent proposal, I began to pray. And I, I said, Lord, um, obviously my answer is going to be no. And it was as if the Lord was saying, are you sure about that? Do you think it's possible that I might be trying to give you a gift that you're not ready to take? Well, no, I really didn't think it was possible, but I had to believe that God might indeed be saying this to me. And so I began to pray seriously about what my answer should be. And God brought to my attention the verse in 1 Corinthians 12, that magnificent chapter on the differences between the parts of the body. And this hit me right between the eyes. Men have different gifts, but it is the same Lord who accomplishes his purposes through them all. I was continually comparing Lars with Jim and Lars with Ad, and there were some very great differences between all three of them, and there were a few similarities. After all, they, they all liked me, which was one thing they had in common, <laughs> in spite of all my peculiarities. And so it was as if the Lord was saying, it's not fair to be comparing him in an unfavorable way. Now, I cannot imagine not making comparisons. Women have said to me, how in the world did you ever manage to bring yourself to marry a third person? But you would never make comparisons, would you? And I said, what do you mean? Of course I would, and I do, and I've always done that. Because if Lars had not compared favorably with the other two, of course I wouldn't have considered him. My husband had to be a Christian. My husband had to have a sense of humor. My husband had to have a few other qualities that I considered basic. But there were some huge differences. And so God was saying, men have different gifts. I am the same Lord. I accomplish my purposes through them all. And then Paul goes on to use that physical analogy. A body is not a single organ. Suppose the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It does belong to the body, nonetheless. If the whole were one single organ, there would not be a body at all. And this 
brings up the question of our differences as husband and wife. We are very much alike in being human. We are very different in being male and female. It is not equality that God aims at. It's unity and harmony. And there is no unity if there is equality. I think of the glorious differences between men and women. We'll get into that perhaps in a later talk. But Jesus said, he that receives you receives me. Have you ever thought of applying that verse to marriage? In receiving this man or this woman, you actually receive Christ, God's gift in this person, chosen by his magnificently varied grace. That's what Paul says. The gifts of God are chosen by his magnificently varied grace. And as James says, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. And there is a sense in which, although this person that you're married to is a sinner and imperfect and fallible, he or she is the perfect gift that comes from the Father of lights, exactly chosen to suit your needs. Now, can you believe that? I said in an earlier talk that we are all incompatible. Well, in spite of that, I really do believe that Lars is the perfect gift that God had chosen for me beyond my wildest imaginings. I've learned things from Lars that I never learned from Jim and Ad. Lars can do things that Jim and Ad couldn't do. Jim could do things that Ad couldn't do. Ad could do things that Lars can't do. Lars can do things that neither one of them could do. And the Lord has been teaching me lessons through the varied personalities of each one of them. But what if my husband or wife is not the solace and the comfort and the companionship that I was expecting him or her to be? I heard a, a woman came up to me after a meeting and she said, what would you tell a young woman, my daughter, who is planning to divorce her husband because he's not meeting all her needs? Well, I said, the poor girl, first of all, she must recognize that this is an outrageous expectation. It's absolutely impossible for any human being to meet another human being's needs. She is expecting far more of her husband than any husband can possibly give. I'm sure that all the tremendous avalanche of books on marriage and the multiplicity of marital seminars which are available have done much good, but I think there is also a great danger in thinking that I can expect of this man what so-and-so expects of her husband. You can sit there and listen to Mary tell about what George does for her and scratch your head and think, well, gee, John doesn't do that for me. And then you begin to get higher and higher and more unreasonable expectations. And this poor girl had obviously been sold a bill of goods and she had raised her expectations to a ridiculous height in the thought that her husband could meet all of her needs. If my husband is not meeting all of my needs, it's in order that I may turn to Jesus Christ and ask him to help me to meet my husband's needs. That should be my concern. If love gives up itself and love gives up its rights, then love is concerned for the other person and to meet the other person's needs. So I'm saying yes to this person 
with all his failings and peculiarities and know to myself. And this is a lifelong day, one day at a time process. One day at a time, I must learn a little bit more about treating my husband as I would treat Christ. He that receiveth you receiveth me. You chose to marry this person because you loved her. That's usually the way it works. But now you must love this person because you married her. Every day you must choose to love this person because you married him or her. It is a daily choice. So thank God for this person and remember that it is a lifelong yes to the will of God. Second thing let's think about. Learning to cleave. Jesus said that a man must leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. As we were driving here this morning, a big sign caught my eye out of the corner of my eye, and I thought it said marital arts. <laughs> I looked again, and it said martial arts. Well, there's only the shift of two letters there, and I thought sometimes we treat marriage as if it were martial arts. Self-defense, some way of, make, of enabling myself to get through this conflict with an enemy. That's not what we're talking about this morning. We're talking about learning to cleave to this person whom I love and whom I chose because I loved. I have a list of the five major areas of conflict in most marriages, and I think you probably know what they are. Communication seems to be at the top of the list, at least the top of women's lists. Money, in-laws, children, and sex. Now, I'm not going to try to deal with each of those in any detail, but let's just mention this business of in-laws. If you're going to learn to cleave to this person that you're married to, then you must leave your own parents. And sometimes it takes a long time to realize that you have made a break. You have left behind your childhood. You have moved into adult responsibility. Now your first priority is your husband or your wife. And when there's conflict or choices to be made between the parents and your spouse, the spouse must come first. Our waitress this morning in the motel told us we were commending her for her wonderful job she was doing, and she said, they call me Mrs. Wonderful. And I said, does your husband call you Mrs. Wonderful? And she said, we're separated right now. And then she said, but not for long. She said, he's got to get his priorities sorted out. She said, and I am priority number one, and our children are priority number two. She said, he thought he wanted to be single again, but he has found out. He's finding out real fast. He really didn't want to be single. But he's got to learn this before he can come back. But she said, we'll be back together. I know. She said, I, I, never, thought, I never thought we wouldn't. But she said, he's got to learn where his priorities are. And that's a tough lesson, and we all have problems with that, don't we? And I've seen a number of situations where there's a live-in in-law, and one spouse, the child of that person, 
has to make a definite break and realize that the first responsibility is to the spouse. And sometimes the husband must protect his wife from his own mother. That's a tough thing to do. I'm not going to try to go into that any further, but when you become a man, you put away childish things, you cut the apron strings, and you accept the responsibility of a wife. To cleave means to stick closely, to be united in strong affection, to cling with strong attachment. As the psalmist said, my bones cleave to my skin. It's the opposite of split, the opposite of divide or sever. The most shocking revelation comes through discovering that you are stuck with this person, an incompatible person. Some of you don't feel this way at all. Some of you that would say, I don't know what she's talking about. My husband and I are wonderfully compatible. She must have had three terrible marriages. I'm not saying that, but I am saying that there are many incompatibilities between any two human beings. And I've just recently read a wonderful story about a missionary in Africa whom I never heard of before. Her name was Florence Alshorn. And she said, she wrote this, I need God so much here. Everything is so difficult. There is so much ungoodness in everything. I keep reminding myself that I am here for Christ and that all the wild and miserable things, as well as the holy and calm ones, must beat through me if I am to be used at all. And I thank God that I am here and that it is not easy. I always wanted that. My colleague is a deer in some ways, but the matter of fact is that Iganga is a hopeless sort of place. This is where Iganga was where she was working. My colleague has stuck it. It just happens not to have affected her health, but it has absolutely rotted her nerves, and she has the most dreadful fits of temper. Sometimes she doesn't speak at all for two days. Just now we've finished up three weeks with never a decent word or smile. One day the old African matron came to me when I was sitting on the veranda crying my eyes out. She sat at my feet and after time she said, I have been on this station for 15 years and I have seen you come out, all of you saying you have brought us a savior. But I have never seen this situation saved yet. It brought me to my senses with a bang. I was the problem for myself. I knew enough of Jesus Christ to know that the enemy was the one to be loved before you could call yourself his follower. And I prayed in great ignorance as to what it was that this same love might be in me. And I prayed as I have never prayed before. Slowly, things rightened. Whereas before she had been going about upsetting everybody with long, deep, dreadful moods, and I had been going to my school depressed and lifeless, both of us found our way to lighten each other. She had a great generosity, and I must have been a cruel burden to her, worn out as she was. But I did see that as we two drew together in a new relationship, the whole character of the work of the station altered. The children felt it and began to share in it and to do little, brave, unselfish things they had never done before. Now this is a single woman speaking of her single colleague, but it is exactly the principle that we're talking about here. It goes 
right across the board in every human relationship. But if it's true in any relationship besides marriage, it is most emphatically and necessarily true in marriage. Now, if this were a description of a marriage, and you were to go to a marital counselor, and you both tell your stories, and the wife's story is that the husband has these dreadful fits of rage and goes into these two-day silences or three weeks without a decent word or a smile, whose fault would the wife think it is? His, of course. It's always the other person's, isn't it? And if you were to tell your sad story to 39 of your closest friends, whose side would they be on? Yours, of course. But Florence Alsharn, a woman of deep insight, said this, I knew that I was the problem. I knew enough of Jesus Christ to know that my enemy was the one to be loved before I could call myself his follower. And I am convinced that there is no problem in marriage, no matter how dreadful, which cannot be worked out through sacrifice. And there is no other word. I have to come back to sacrifice. It doesn't mean only loss and deprivation. It means an offering, the willingness to let go. And Florence Alshorn was determined that she was going to cleave to this co-worker come hell or high water. And the scripture says, many waters cannot quench love. She had a shocking revelation, not only of the character of this old and esteemed missionary, but she had a shocking revelation of herself. This woman, I thought I could never get, some of you husbands may be thinking, now I can't get along with and I can't get rid of. Mike Mason in his book, The Mystery of Marriage, says something like that. This person you thought you could never get, now you can't get rid of. It is a horrifying revelation and it follows what is called carnal knowledge. In intercourse, you are quite literally one flesh. That was God's design. And you are to cleave together as one flesh. You've been granted an entrance into the holiest of holies. And it is the innermost private secret place of the other person. But once you have known that person, and you know that the Old Testament word that Abraham knew his wife simply means sexual intercourse. Once you have known that person, then his or her frailties are revealed. And this explains, I believe, the utter confusion of premarital sex. Because you have trodden on holy ground with your shoes on, you have barged through fences and trespassed sanctions which God commanded. You trample on the mystery and the glory of the unattainable virgin. The uncovering of her secrets you had no right to without the prior hallowing of that commitment, without vows made, first of all, in the presence of God and public witnesses. 
And this revelation, unless it is in the context of a made commitment, a prior publicly made commitment, is its disillusionment. The revelation of the other person's frailty will disillusion you. But if you're married and you have already promised that you will love, honor, cherish, obey, revere this person till death parts the two of you, then the decision is not up for grabs. You're not constantly deciding whether you want to stick with this person or not. Familiarity, as the old adage says, breeds contempt. And that's why I think that living together before marriage or even sleeping together once is a very, very dangerous thing to do, not to mention that it is absolutely disobedience to God. Love accepts this person. Taking up the cross means sticking with Jesus through thick and thin. Accepting this husband or wife means sticking with them through thick and thin. You have granted her the right to love you, and she grants you the right to love her, and therefore you have rights over each other. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7 that the husband does not have power over his own body. It belongs to his wife. And the wife does not have power over her body. It now belongs to the husband. There is a sense of possession here, which is God-given, and it has to be treated with tremendous respect. We are one flesh. We are stuck. We are meant to cleave, not to split, not to separate, not to sever. And God commands us to love, and he gives us the power to do it. God never commands us to do anything that he does not give us the power to do. And as Florence Alshorn recognized, she could not do this without God's help. She said she prayed for what she knew she didn't understand. And I speak to you this morning as one very far from understanding the love of God. But I know what the standard is. Don't imagine that you're looking at Exhibit A of the perfect wife, not by a long shot. I know, and God knows, and Lars knows how far short I fall. But I would have no right to hold up to you any less than God's standard. That's what it is. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. Thank you.